Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast with me, Simon Walters, assistant editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platell, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, why paedophiles and terrorists who refuse to atone for the gravity of their crimes will face longer behind bars. I owe it to the public. The government owes it to the public to protect them. Uh, it's our first duty. And I think I'd be failing in that duty if I didn't take the sort of action that we're going to do in this emergency bill. Is Boris Johnson's grandiose plan to build a road bridge from Scotland to Northern Ireland based on nothing more than his love of Roman aqueducts. <laughs> well, veteran Tory campaigner David Davis thinks it might be. Brexit is not enough. Brexit just creates the opportunity. It doesn't provide the answers. Don't think stealing Labour ideas is a good idea for a Conservative government. Uh, and I don't think the way we keep the Northern vote is by trying to be a sort of second-rate Labour. And don't forget to subscribe to us on our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, or leave us a review. Tell Alexa to play Daily Mail News and you'll hear the latest episode of Order Order and email us anytime at orderorder at mailplus.co.uk So is there really a battle in the background between Dominic Cummings and Carrie Simmons, the Prime Minister's chief advisor and his partner? If so, Amanda, who's your money on? Cracky, it's got to be with Carrie. I mean, ultimately, um, she's the one who has the, let's say, the closest access to the Prime Minister. But, Simon, this is an incredible story because, look, we've seen kind of bossy first women in number 10, first ladies. You know, Cherie Blair had a lot to say about various things. But the tradition in this country is that you may sleep with the guy, you may be married to the guy, but you don't have your finger in the political pie. And what Carrie's done is she's set a whole new precedent. She's gone to war with Dominic Cummings, Boris's most trusted advisor. But actually, I'm sitting there thinking, one of the reasons we got out of the EU is we didn't want unelected, undemocratic people leading the government. And now we've got a bird who's sleeping with the Prime Minister and some kind of crackpot guy who's, um, uh, everyone says, is just making everyone outraged, who are going to control the next reshuffle of the Cabinet. Well, of course, that, that's, that's what this battle is really over. I think that's what started it, because the, with the, a reshuffle is imminent. And Carrie Simmons, of course, has a formidable... She's a political activist. And, she's not elected, Simon. No, but what I'm saying is she, she has worked for the Tory party. She's a significant political figure in her own right. And she has her own political relationships. She's, pre, uh, she's worked for Sajid Javid. She's close to Ben Wallace. And both these two have been under threat in the reshuffle, and they're amongst the two that Cummings wants out. And on top of that, there's a whole load of these special advisers that she's close to, that she wants to help them keep their jobs. Cummings wants them out because he thinks they leak to the press. And it's going to be fascinating. And because Boris Johnson, he's not great at dealing with personal confrontations, is he? No. Yeah, um, I return to my original point. It is outrageous that anyone has a say over our next cabinet by virtue of the fact that they're sleeping with the Prime Minister, whether they be wife or girlfriend. It's just not on. <laughs>
This week saw an increasing storm gathering around Baroness Scotland, with the UK suspending funding of the Commonwealth Secretariat. Now, this is the story which has been it's become quite a, a saga. This is Baroness Scotland. She's the Secretary General of the Commonwealth Secretariat, which runs the 53 Commonwealth countries. And there's been a persistent series of reports of incompetence by her and cronyism and it's really come to a head in the last few weeks. What you've seen now is that Britain, Australia, New Zealand and Canada, who are the big paymasters of the Commonwealth Secretariat, they've basically withdrawn their funding unless she goes and it's coming to a head. They've got to resolve it because there's a massive Commonwealth summit in Rwanda in Africa in a couple of months' time. Prince Charles is going to be there. It's got to be resolved one way or the other. So the thing about this story, I mean, it's been rumbling on for quite a long time. I mean, you've been leading it in a lot of ways. But the question marks over her integrity and over the cronyism, you know, preferential deals for friends, things like that. What she's always says, her defence is always, they're only attacking me because I am um, a woman of colour. She's from Dominica in the yeah. Caribbean. Yeah. yeah, but she's she's British, you know. And, and actually, if a person, whatever their colour was, whether they be white, whether they be whatever their sexual orientation, she's done things which have fell below the very high level that's expected in this job, which relies enormously upon the goodwill of the Commonwealth. I mean, it's a really good organisation. She's tarnished it. She has to go. Mm. And, and I think the idea that it's based on colours is fallacious because most of most of the people who've held her position have been from uh, black Commonwealth countries, India and Guyana and Nigeria. And the one that I think think Boris Johnson's lining up to replace her is a fascinating woman. She's called Amina Mohammed. She's a Kenyan politician. She was born in Somalia in poverty. And now listen to this. And she learned to read English to learn English how? By reading Sherlock Holmes novels as a child. <laughs> but the, the other thing about her is that every time someone in a position of authority and power uses the race card to try and disguise what is basically bad behaviour, it just makes things much more difficult for other people from black and Asian backgrounds. I blame Meghan Markle. <gasps> how dare you? She's not even here to blame anymore. <laughs> Justice Minister Robert Buckland has announced new legislation known as Helen's Law. It's named after 22-year-old Helen McCourt, who was murdered in 1989 by Ian Sims. Sims is due to be released soon, even though he's refused to say where Helen's body is buried. Under Helen's Law, in future, unrepentant killers like Sims could be locked up forever. Mr Buckland also unveiled emergency laws to stop some 50 convicted terrorists being let out in the next few months. This is in response to the terror attacks in Streatham and London Bridge. Helen's Law is named after the victim of a horrific murder some 30 or so years ago, Helen McCourt. She was murdered by a man called Ian Sims, uh, who was a local publican. Uh, her body was never found. Ian Sims was arrested thanks to the, the then miracle of DNA and he was brought to justice and convicted of Helen's murder. But from that day to this, he has never ever cooperated or sought to help the authorities to tell them where Helen's body is. That's caused huge grief 
to the family who not only had to deal with the horrific aftermath of losing Helen, but have never been able to get any degree of closure, to have a, a burial, to have a funeral. And Mari McCourt, who's Helen's mother, has, with great dignity, had a long campaign to try and sharpen up and improve the rules by which the probation board apply their guidelines when it comes to the assessment of risk before the release of uh, any prisoner from a sentence. In short, this means that in future, anybody who's, who's jailed for murdering someone and who hasn't revealed the whereabouts of the body will not be released unless they do that. Well, what it does is that it puts on a legal footing for the first time the guidelines that say that if you fail to uh, cooperate and help the authorities locate the body of a victim, then that is a factor that should be taken into account by the parole board when deciding whether or not to release somebody. It's not um, an absolute bar, I must stress that, because um, when you think about it, if you create uh, incentives for people to uh, say that they're sorry and to then you know superficially cooperate even though they don't mean it you, 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 there's a danger there that you're incentivizing people to mislead mm -hmm. the parole board that I think would be a mistake that's why I think the balance we're striking today by putting it on a statutory footing for the first time making it clear as a parliament that we regard this sort of behavior as grave as serious and as something that the parole board must take into account, I think that really helps give certainty and support to the families of victims who, who find it so difficult to achieve closure whilst responsible for. Can I come to the, the other law which, which you're tightening up, in fact you're pushing through this legislation very quickly, these are the new anti-terror laws and, and this is really in response to the, the terrorist incidents at London Bridge and Streatham. Now this is quite controversial be, be, because you're pushing it through very quickly. Explain what effect that will have. Well, the effect of the law that I'll be uh, put, putting through the Commons tomorrow as an emergency bill will be to end the practice of automatic early release for a range of terrorist and terrorist-related offenders who uh, not only uh, um, you know future offences will be covered, but also people currently in prison. What I am going to do is reform the way that we administer the sentence. I'm not going to change the length or nature of the sentence itself, but reform the way in which we manage the sentence. So the effect will be, instead of automatic release at halfway, I'm moving the release uh, the earliest release date to two-thirds through the sentence and then bringing the parole board in so that they make the decision as to whether or not that person is released. Mm. The, the, on, on the wider point, if you look at both these bits of legislation, is this an indication that this government is taking a much tougher approach to law and order generally? And what, what do you see as the significance of that? Well, I think we want to make sure that the public have confidence in the criminal justice system uh, and that they know that they have a government that is behind them and on their side. Now, now, yes, some of the measures that we're taking are, are tough and robust measures, but I'll also be looking later in the year at the whole sentencing system to make sure that when it comes to people with mental health problems, addiction issues, that we're really doing everything we can with them to make sure that they don't return to crime. So it's not just tough, it's smart. It's, it almost sounds like tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime, as someone once said. <laughs> well, uh, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, 
that was the, the previous political generation. We're in a new generation now that's learnt a lot of the lessons about uh, where things can perhaps go wrong with criminal justice, is responsive to public concern and is taking correct and robust action and taking swift action to deal with public confidence. Amanda, do you think these two measures are steps in the right direction? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's not so much tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. It's tough on crime and tough on the sentencing of crimes. Mm. So they're kind of projecting it forwards with both of these measures. Sadly, in the case of Helen's law, and her mother has fought so tirelessly to get this change, you're caught in this catch-22 because most of these monsters who murder often their women, to their dying day, they say they didn't do it. So by identifying where the body's buried is making them culpable. So you've got that, that that's going to be a really tricky one to ever get anyone to fess up to. But as for the keeping um, convicted terrorists in prison for two-thirds, I'd say, why not three-thirds? <laughs> well, I, I, and then double the sentence. Yeah, there's, I think there's a hard, I think there's a hardening up here. Actually, I think this is more tough on crime than tough on the cause of crime. There's a clear hardening up, and I think Boris Johnson came to bat in the election. They, they they struck a tougher note on crime. I think that was all part and parcel of appealing to a more working class voters in the north and I think we're starting to see signs of that. Okay, I'll just halt you there for a second. It's not just people in the north. You know, you look at the the stories this week that that car crime is rife in this country. You know, and the police don't even have enough people to officers to do anything about it. Homes being burgled. Crime is something that touches everyone. And this is what we see when we get a conservative prime minister with a massive majority. Yeah, and, and also I thought the, the other aspect to Helen's Law, which was slightly less publicised, was as, as well as um, meaning that any, anyone who's killed someone will have to say what they've done with their body before they're going to get released. Th this will also apply to paedophiles. There was a high-profile case of a woman called Vanessa George about 10 years ago who was imprisoned for sexually abusing a large number of children at a children's centre that she ran. And it means that people like her in future would not be let out unless they revealed in full the identities of the children of all the that, that they, they abused. Yeah. And, and, of course, that's on top of the other measure they announced, which, which is the deportation of the Jamaican uh, convicts. And <clears throat> there was about 60 or 70 due to go back, and the government was furious when legal when a legal appeal was, was was successful preventing this and they said, you know, we're gonna fight this. This this is this is not what your average people in Britain want. Now, look, I've never been accused of being a lily-livered um, lefty, but I totally disagree with this, um, the deportation of people. You know, there are people there, there's a guy who, who was selling Class A drugs. He's been here since he was two years old. I think that there, with the tiny majority of people from Jamaica who came over during the Windrush period or subsequently came out to join their parents, they're British. You know, they're our citizens. I don't think that we should be turfing them back. It's completely different from a Romanian rapist, you know, who's murdered three women. You know, these are people who've come here. They've been invited into the country. It's a culture of them coming here. And I think it's completely wrong that we don't deal with the badens here and lock them up in prison here. I knew I'd find your soft centre eventually. <laughs> it's only taken five years. <laughs> Less than two months after being hailed as a conquering hero by the Tory faithful, 
Boris Johnson faces a mutiny. HS2, Huawei, mansion tax, pensions tax, a road bridge to Northern Ireland. Conservative MPs are queuing up to criticise him. Former Cabinet Minister and Johnson cheerleader David Davis says unlike the first blonde Tory revolutionary, Margaret Thatcher, Boris just hasn't thought things through properly. Let's start with a historic background. I mean, where we are is an enormous reset moment in British politics. It is the biggest reset moment uh, uh, since 1979. And then there was a revolution of expectations as we took a new view of ourselves and Britain became the fifth biggest economy in the world under, under Thatcher. Today is another reset moment. We are taking a new view of ourselves. We are looking to expand onto the global, uh, onto the global sphere, out of our European protection, as it were. And so there's a reset moment, and the government is now beginning to address the big issues that uh, that it has to uh, in, in in delivering that reset. But we're seeing a series of big decisions, Huawei, HS2 and other things, where there's quite a considerable body of conservative reaction against it, including you. What is it that concerns you about the big decisions that Boris Johnson is making? Well, I, I disagree with a fair number of them. I disagree with them on, on Huawei, or the government on Huawei. I disagree with them on HS2 and disagree with them on some of the some of the tax proposals that are coming out, coming out with. We are as heavily taxed as we have been since the very early 80s already. Unlike the 1979 reset moment, when we have been in opposition for five years, when the likes of Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher had set up the Centre for Policy Studies, they had already got lots of ideas from the Institute for Economic Affairs. They'd spent five years thinking, what do we need to do to get Britain out of the doldrums? Uh, by that, are you saying that you don't think these big ideas have been thought out properly in the way that that such a government thought out its programme? Well, they haven't had the time to. I mean, uh, the, the, the government's, well, indeed, the whole country's mind, its bandwidth in the, in the modern term, has been completely occupied by Brexit. You know, where's been, the, where's been the time and space to think what sort of tax strategy we need, what sort of innovation strategy do we need, what sort of infrastructure strategy do we need? You know, we've, we've had to move very fast and they've had to move very fast to come up with ideas to pluck ideas from all over the place to actually make something of of the new britain uh, well, of course, it, it's getting beyond Brexit, isn't it? I suppose Margaret Thatcher ha had a similar issue to the extent that her government was in danger of being dominated by monetarism, but but she sort of found well, a way around that. Well, that's, well, that well, she made a speech called Monetarism is Not Enough, you know, in which she made the point that what they were talking about is a complete society-wide change or transformation process. Well, today, Brexit is not enough. Brexit just creates the opportunity. It doesn't provide the answers, you know. Uh, and, and many of these answers are going to be difficult to get right. I mean, some of them I think the government has got right. I mean, I think what it's doing on research is in the right direction anyway, massively increasing research. Uh, and massively increasing infrastructure is a good idea. But maybe some of the details are perhaps haven't well, been thought through well, well enough. Well, I was going to ask you, could yeah. HS2, 100 billion yeah. plus, uh, um, well, and we've got this bridge to Northern Ireland. Well, well, the, these, Boris likes these big iconic ideas. Ideas, doesn't he? Whether they're practical or not. Well, but Boris is a classicist. He undoubtedly is impressed by by the Colosseum and, and by and by uh, by uh, um, aqueducts. aqueducts. You, yeah. you think the British North Island is, is Boris's kind of Roman aqueduct? Well, I think it's a very visual thing. I mean, he, he likes this big symbolic thing, and it, and it represents like, like everything Boris does. It ra wraps up a whole load of ideas into a very visual uh, uh, concept. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think you know, he, take HS2. 
I mean, I don't agree with HS2. I've never agreed with it from the beginning. It's nothing to do with Boris. It's right from the very beginning. I thought it was a bit of a badly conceived project, even under the Andrew Adonis days. Uh, but what, what's going to happen now? We already accept it's going to be 100 billion, three times what it already cost. Let's say Boris is, in, Boris is Prime Minister for the next 10 years. Every couple of years, there's going to be an announcement of another five or ten million on the on the cost. There's going to be an announcement of another year extension. It was going to be 2028, oh no, 2029, 2030, 2035. That's what's going to be going on. And people will look back and say, that's a decision we made right at the beginning. That big first decision is going to come back and haunt us. So that's, that, for me, is one of, the, one of the unfortunate outcomes of the fact we haven't had our five years' preparation for, for the reset moment. But um, the other controversial idea that they're, they're, they're toying with, apparently, is the mansion tax. Now, I would have thought, as a working-class Tory, countenance kid, single-parent family, I would have thought the mansion tax would have appealed to you. Isn't that the way to get the... to, to, to keep the votes that you've been lent in the North? Uh, generally speaking, I don't think stealing Labour ideas is a good idea for a Conservative government. Uh, and I don't think the way we keep the Northern vote... Uh, is by trying to be a sort of uh, second-rate Labour. In a way, some of these things are a Southerner's view of what Northerners think, <laughs> not what Northerners actually think. Well, Boris is getting it from both sides of the House. Here's Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. The Prime Minister is clearly fond of announcing big, shiny projects, like the scheme to build a bridge over the Irish Sea. Why not go the whole hog and make it a garden bridge? connected to an airport in the sea. It stands as much chance of actually being built as any of those failed projects by the former mayor of London put forward. Well, Amanda, is there already a Tory rebel alliance going on? And is Boris really just winging it? <laughs> Look, it's it's kind of a no-brainer for Boris to, to agree to HS2 because it's going to take, what, 15 years to complete? and No more, I think, yeah. I think the first phase is 15 mm. years. I'll always stand corrected by you, Simon. You know that. <laughs> and the thing about it, it's going to be, you know, his chances of being prime minister in 15 years um, would be historic and are therefore non-existent. So it's not going to fall on his watch. It's an easy thing to show that he's full of decisions, you know, that he's capable of getting things done. But I did think Corbyn was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I don't think I've ever uttered that sentence before. Corbyn was brilliant in the House yesterday, and he had really good jokes and rolling together all of Boris's um, ridiculous ideas. I think they should keep him. Forget about forget about your lisping Lisa, who you want in as leader. I think the the, the other thing about what what Davis said that interested me was the comparison between this big moment. Clearly, it's a big change in in the government of this country. Comparing it with the Thatcher years, and the point he made was that when Thatcher came in, she'd had spent years thinking about a grand pro program and then enacted it, whereas he says that Boris Johnson's government hasn't really had the time to do that, partly because of Brexit. And you've got a whole number of fronts now where there's quite a lot of... And these are Tory loyalists, Davis, um, Bill Cash and Andrew Bridgen, using very strong language. And I think, you know, when, when you get a strong government you very soon find that the opposition to that government comes not from the official opposition, but from within the governing party, and that's yes. what's happening. And especially when the opposition actually doesn't exist at 
the moment. But I thought it was really interesting what David said. The mansion tax is the kind of idea dreamt up by Southerners mm. thinking what Northerners would think. And, you know, it kind of implies that there's no one in the North who's got a house that's over a million quid. Well, there'd be quite a few of them and quite a few of them actually aspiring to have that. And it's it's sort of this arrogance that, that we know what that poor lot with cloth hats up, up North think. Like from where I come from in Liverpool. They don't have any idea of my family in Toxteth. Oh, have I said that before, Simon? One, Do you know I come from Toxteth? One minute it's Liverpool, one minute it's Australia. You're, you're no. just a citizen from nowhere. <gasps> I'm a citizen from everywhere. Is our topical tune this week, Boomtown Rats, I Don't Like Mondays? Is it you too, Bloody Sunday? Or is it something that you've thought up um, or remember that none of us have ever heard of? Well, I did think we ought to do something Irish. It's been a big week in Ireland. Sinn Féin's made historic breakthroughs in the, in the elections there. But it made me feel quite sad, really, because um, the rise of Sinn Féin means a united Ireland is closer, which is great for some people in Ireland. But I think it makes me sad because I think it brings forward the day when um, Northern Ireland breaks away and as a patriotic supporter of the union I, you know the breakup of the UK is a little bit closer so I, I think we did an Irish lament and I think the one my favourite Irish lament is a traditional Irish song called She Moved Through the Fair and it goes like this my young love said to me, my mother won't mind, and my father won't slight you for your lack of kind. Then she moved away from me, and this she did say, it will not be long now till our wedding day. That's beautiful. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And join us next week for more political chat and Simon singing. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platell. Goodbye. Goodbye.